Let's get into the Bible this morning. Revelation is what we've been studying this summer, and we'll continue to study it. If you're new to us or you're just jumping into this podcast series, listening online right in the middle, or you're watching on social media, we've been studying through Revelation, starting at chapter one, a chapter at a time, and doing our best not to skip over anything. It can be a very intimidating letter to read. It was the last letter written chronologically of the Bible, we believe, or close to the last, um, between that and the Gospel of John. Uh, It was... It was written first to first century Christians, and one of the challenges we have today is we read it with our modern eyes and our modern ears, and we're trying to read this imagery. It is a form of literature unique, and we're trying to read this book, and uh, in many ways, most of us are trying to decipher and decode what we think that it is saying to us today, and with the approach we've taken here in teaching this is we're going to try, in our Sunday lessons on this, we're going to try not to get hung up on the trees of Revelation, we're going to look at the forest, okay? We're, try, we're going to try not to get out of our microscopes and trying to figure out what all, every tiny little symbol and image means in contemporary history. In fact, we're pretty sure that that's not what the first hearers of this were able to do. In fact, they didn't even have the benefit we have of having it written down. They couldn't just take this home and study it. They heard it read once, out loud in their ears and the expectation was that they could get the the forest of revelation and leave that church service and actually enter into living out what they felt like they were hearing so um, we've been reading through revelation it it uh, it begins in the first century with the apostle john as he was elderly and aged and probably a little fragile he was living in solitary confinement, being imprisoned because he wouldn't stop preaching about Jesus Christ. And as he's in solitary confinement on the island of Patmos, he gets a visitor. And normally people in solitary confinement don't get visitation privileges. He gets visited by none other than the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he, he John, describes this visitation as like standing in front of a fiery furnace on full blast looking directly into the sun and hearing all of the oceans of the world roar at once. And Jesus scares John nearly to death. And uh, John writes that once he realized he wasn't actually dead, that he was still alive, Jesus puts his hand on John and picks him back up and says, John, it's not your time to die. I have an assignment for you. I'm going to show you some things. I'm going to peel back one transparency layer of reality and show you another layer that most people can't see, and I want you to look at it very closely. And then I want you to write down what you saw. I want you to write it in a letter. I want you to send it through the, the, the postal system that they have available to you, and I want you to write it all down and send it to the churches in Asia, and they're going to they're gonna pass it around, and they're going to read it out loud. And the content of what I'm going to show you, John, are things that are happening now and things that are going to happen soon. And so that's what we've been studying in Revelation. The first thing that we studied and spent several weeks on was the first part of Revelation is seven letters inside a letter. The letter of Revelation has actually seven individual letters to seven individual churches. And what we see in those letters is that God is saying through Jesus to the church, I know what you're doing. I see everything. And God says, I see you're imperfect. I also see that the world you live in hates you. And I want you to know that even in your imperfections and even in persecution, Jesus is with you. And Jesus is standing there with you and you're not alone in this. And we see that in those seven letters. And then we transitioned into chapters five, six, and seven, which you've heard over the past few weeks. Uh, John sees now, he, he sees an open door in heaven and he's invited to go up and see what's going on in heaven. And the first thing he sees is that what's happening in heaven is worship. 
We know what heaven is really like is worship. All of life is leading us towards worship. And that's what's going on. And then he sees that there's more content in the form of a, a legal scroll written on the front and on the back that has been sealed with seven seals. There's information inside that is supposed to be announced, it's supposed to be read, and there's tragedy in heaven and there's, 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 there's gloom in that moment because John recognizes that there's no one qualified to open those seals. No one is qualified to be able to read the seals that contains the judgment and the anger and the end of, of time as we know it except for the Lamb. And the Lamb of G Jesus Christ in the form of the Lamb comes and he's able to start opening up that document because he's the one who has stood in judgment and punishment on our behalf. And so as he breaks open those seals one at a time, what we've seen so far in chapters five, six, and seven, we've seen God is very angry. And we see his anger take the form of different judgments and signs that he is demonstrating to earth to show us how angry he is. And as this is happening, we see two groups of human beings on the earth emerge in chapters five, six, and seven. One group sees the anger of God and the presence of God manifested in this way and they recoil and they flee from him and they harden their hearts and they say, I'm not gonna believe in God, I'm not gonna turn in God, I'm gonna keep on doing what I'm doing. Then there's another group who sees what's coming and they see the judgment of God, they see the anger of God against sin and they say, please save me. And they repent and they rejoice in the presence of God. And the one group who wouldn't turn their hearts towards God suffers under the wrath of God and the other group is preserved by God. He puts a seal of protection upon them uh, because their wrath has already been satisfied through the person of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to where we're at today, chapter eight. And you know, I've titled the message today, The Wrath of God. I'm not gonna sugarcoat this. Um, it is exactly what the message says that it is. It's not a bait and switch message. This message shows us God is in fact and has been and will continue to be extremely angry, very angry. He's angry at evil. He's angry at wrong. He's angry at sin, and it must be punished. And that's what this chapter shows to us. Um, it's not an easy read. It's not an easy preach. It's not an easy listen. It's not meant to be. However, if you'll listen with the ears of the first century today, if you'll listen with the ears of just a heart that's open to try and understand this, you will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus presented to you in the way that is very, very clear and very life transforming. You'll also hear a very clear warning about the dangers of continuing in sin and ignoring the different trumpets that God's trying to reveal to us to say, I don't wanna surprise you with my wrath. I wanna reveal it to you so that you have time to be able to repent before you perish. That's really the message of this chapter. One pastor who preached on this about 25 years ago, I was going through some of his notes, and he wrote that most of chapter 8, if you didn't know any better, you'd think it was written by Stephen King, not the Apostle John. So with that in mind, let me read to you Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll study it a little bit this morning. Here's what uh, John writes to us. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets, then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. 
The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire, a third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood, one third of all things living in the sea died, and one third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one third of the sun was struck, and one third of the moon, and one third of the stars, and they became dark, and one third of the day was dark, and also one third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Uh, again, it, it sounds pretty much like out of a horror movie, not, necessi not necessarily something that would come through the Apostle John. And um, you know, My intention this morning, and I can't unpack this entire chapter for us today, we simply just don't have the time on a Sunday. So please don't think that this is the exhaustive teaching on this chapter. I, I get lots of emails from you during the week, and it's great because I know you're listening actively. You're saying, but you didn't touch on this, and you didn't explain that, and that would be important for us all to hear. I agree. The good news is that I realize you're discovering that the Bible has so much to say to us, we can't possibly tackle all of it on a Sunday morning, and you're thinking about this and studying this during the week. This is great. Please give me permission to not have to go into all of this this morning. We just don't have the time to be able to do it, but I do want to help us understand this. Here's my intention. I want to help us understand the wrath of God as best I can. Uh, why, the things we're going to look at is, what is it? What is the wrath of God? Why is he so angry? And what do we do about it? How do we respond to that? So my big idea today, I'll try and summarize it in the big idea. The big idea is for us to recognize that throughout history, not just in the future, but throughout history, God has been punishing the evil all around us. These punishments, which are also known as God's wrath or his judgment, these punishments are meant to be understood as bold, intense, and alarming warnings to motivate all of us to repent from our wickedness or else we'll perish. That's the big idea today. The big idea is that we need to walk away from this like the first century church was supposed to be by saying, aha, aha, that explains earthquakes. That explains disease. That explains war. That explains famine. None of these were God's idea. This wasn't in the garden. That's not what God wants. These are not just random occurrences. This is God showing us, I'm angry. And I'm not supposed to write it off or dismiss it or suppress it. I'm supposed to open my eyes that all around me, both the earth and people are getting their comeuppance. And it needs to be a warning to me that I need to turn to God or else I will perish, just like everybody else that's turned from God. So um, let's look at three questions this morning. What is the wrath of God? Why is he so angry? And how do you and I respond to that? Question number one, what is the wrath of God? What is it? Here's a, a simple answer that I, uh, I believe we see here in Revelation uh, chapter 8 and also in, uh, in Romans 1 and 2 and throughout the rest of the scriptures. The wrath of God is God's anger that is being revealed to us through our consciences and circumstances. It's God's anger that is being revealed to us through our consciences and circumstances. 
Um, and I will just say uh, briefly this morning, whenever we get angry, we have one of two options. We reveal it somehow or we try and suppress it and bottle it up. Have you ever unintentionally been the person who pushed, a pers- pushed another person from being able to suppress their anger for a while to, to having to reveal it? Like, I remember like three years into marriage, I had something about the, the, where I was putting my dirty dishes, and my wife finally went from suppressing her anger to revealing it. And I found out in no uncertain terms that not only was this, uh, it wasn't just about where I put the dish that day. It was that for three years. For three years I had been doing this, but I had no idea. Now, I should have, but we men are dumb sometimes. We just don't get the hints. We don't get the sighs. We don't get the huffs. We read them wrong. And I remember in that moment being like, A, I I should have picked up on this early, and if only she had told me three years ago, or if only I had figured this out, I could have saved us both a lot of heartache, right? You need to see that God could suppress all of his anger and convince us that everything's okay when it's not, right? God could do this, and that would be a great tragedy for all of us. He could convince us, almost deceive us into thinking that all of the evil in our lives, all of the wrong that we do, all of the wrong of humanity doesn't bother him at all. And what will happen then in chapter 9 when we see the great day of judgment? We'll all be completely shocked. Instead, in his mercy to us, God reveals, has revealed, is revealing, and will continue to reveal his anger against us. How is he doing? The Bible says in Romans 1 and 2 that we Every human being knows in their heart that God is angry. The Bible says all of creation knows deep down God is angry. We know something's broken in our relationship with God. We might suppress it. We might write it off as some type of fiction invented by Christians. We might turn to all other kinds of, the Bible says, some people turn to their wickedness to suppress. In other words, here's what the Bible says. Sin offers us a temporary burst of pleasure and happiness. And the Bible teaches that human beings turn to sin to suppress the inner emptiness they feel when they recognize there's something broken and wrong. So it feeds, it feeds on itself. Some people, when they recognize something's broken and wrong about me or about life, they turn to a type of sin to pacify it because they don't like feeling broken. And they feel the vacuum with the temporary pleasure of sin, the Bible teaches us. That's how it works. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. God shows his anger from heaven. Notice that that's present tense. In the here and now, God is is revealing to us his anger. This is not all waiting for some futuristic point in the future. God is revealing to us. He shows us his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. The Bible teaches us that every human being, deep in their heart of hearts, knows something's broken in the universe. That's why we lock our doors at night. Why do we lock our doors at night? Because we know that this universe is broken. 
Why do you lock your car when you come inside? Well, pastor, I don't believe in evil. I believe the world's really good. Okay, leave your doors open at night. Never lock your car. Let your kids play in the front yard for hours. You don't believe that. You know the world's broken. You know it's broken. The Bible says God's revealing the brokenness and the evil of the world through everything that's made so that no one has an excuse to say, I didn't realize it was all broken. I didn't realize I was evil. The Bible says we all know that's true. We just find different ways of coping with the emptiness of that reality. Paul says in plain language what John records and sees through the seven trumpets. Throughout the entire course of history, Paul shows us, John shows us, the entire history of the world we live in, from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden up until Jesus will return the second time, there are trumpets, there are warnings, there are signs of God's wrath being sounded, all of us saying that God is angry and sin must be punished. How is he showing us that? How is he revealing his wrath? Give you just a couple ways. One way the Bible shows us is through our conscience. All of us in our conscience knows right from wrong. Now, I've preached before about conscience and that conscience is imperfect. Conscience can be conditioned. Conscience can be ignored. But it's this basic moral compass that we're born with that helps us understand the generalities of of right and wrong. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, I won't read it for you now, but it's in chapter 2. He says, normal human behavior goes like this. When we notice something wrong in others, we believe that wrong should be punished. We believe when you tell a lie, you should get caught for it. When you cheat on your taxes, when you drive past me and you zoom past me on the highway, the cop down the road should catch you and punish you. Our inconsistencies, we believe when there's wrong in ourself, it ought not be punished. When I hear you do it, it's gossip and it's slander. When I do it, it's just venting, right? When you say something that seems so out of place, and so insensitive, that's being mean. But when I do it, it's just because I'm direct and I'm outspoken. When we see wrong in others, Romans 2 says, we believe it should be punished, but our inconsistency is, when we see wrong in ourselves, we believe it should be excused or softened or justified. We believe we should be shown grace and mercy. But, you know, the bottom line is, we know right from wrong, and we know deep in our hearts, the Bible teaches, everybody in the earth knows wrong ought to be punished. Now, a few people may con themselves into thinking otherwise, but most of us in our consciences know there's a quarrel between me and God. Most of us know that. Another way, so God reveals his wrath through our uneasy conscience. Another way God reveals his wrath is through our circumstances. Most of the earth operates on some sort of a basic understanding that you reap what you sow. You may not use those words. You might hear people talk about karma, right? You know, you get what you give. You get worse than you give, or you get more than what you give. It all goes around. You reap what you sow. We've seen it happen through history. We've seen, uh, some of us just think that it's really extreme uh, circumstances. Like, hey, we, we, we know that Hitler was awful and a terrible human being, and eventually he got what was coming. And most of us can look at history and look at circumstances and say, you know, in the, in the, we live in a world where sin has consequences. We, but most of us believe that if you do wrong and if you do crime, crime doesn't pay. Most of us can see that. We also see God's wrath revealed in death itself. Death is the ultimate expression of the anger of God. And I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but no matter how hard we romanticize death, no matter how much we talk about when I die, I get to be a butterfly or whatever it is, none of us in this room this morning is looking at death with giddy excitement. Nobody here really wants to die. Death wasn't God's idea. That's the ultimate expression of his wrath towards people. 
we know that the wages of sin is death. Something is wrong, and death is bad. And there's nobody here that wants to die. Another way God has really revealed his wrath and what I'm coming to this morning, and again, the first point of this is the most content of all of them. But what John is showing us in Revelation is that another way God has revealed his wrath is through history, through the cycles and the patterns of the way that, that we've seen wrath being revealed. One of the ways God reveals his wrath, and you have to catch this, one of the ways God reveals how angry he is, and it goes the whole way back to the garden, is by letting people who want to turn against him do just that. In other words, their own anger against God is his anger against them. God lets people who want to remain angry. He lets them go their own way. The idea that John is trying to show us here is sin is self-destructive. You give yourself to sin, you give yourself to evil, and it will destroy you. If you read through Revelation, here's basically what God is saying to his creation. You want to worship a beast? Fine. But he's a beast, and he's going to destroy you. You want to drink of all the pleasures of sin or in the Revelation language? You want to drink of the wine of Babylon? Go ahead. But it's poison, and it will rot you from the inside out. This is God's wrath. He lets us, over time, go ahead and pursue our own wrath against him and live life our own way and drink of all of its pleasures and drink destruction unto ourselves. Let's look briefly at these trumpets. Each of the trumpets here contains ideas and images that should remind us, and it definitely reminded the first century, of things that have already happened in the past and things that are happening right now. If we look at each of these trumpets, they should not be, I've never seen God do anything like that before. We better pay attention because maybe tomorrow or maybe a thousand years down the road, this might happen. No, God's showing us ways he's been revealing his wrath that he is revealing his wrath, and he will continue to reveal his wrath in increasing frequency if we'll just look at these things. When the first Christians heard it, it's unlikely that they were thinking about something that would happen in the future when there were iPhones and internet. It's likely that the first century said, oh, I've heard of all this stuff before, or these things are going on right now. You see, uh, you see trumpet number one is sounded, and you see hail in the form of fire and blood on the land itself. Trumpet number two, you see a fiery mountain hurled from the sky and turns all the sea into blood. Trumpet number three, you see that all fresh water becomes poison. And trumpet number four, you see the sun, the moon, and the stars darken. And if you were the first century, you wouldn't have been thinking about the day and age that you and I live in. They would have thought, oh, these were the plagues of Egypt. We've heard this before. We've seen God get really, really, really angry and send a sign and then another sign and then another sign, a warning and a warning and a warning to try and get somebody to repent. And they would have been thinking about most likely the plagues of Egypt when God sent four, ten total trumpets. He sent ten trumpets trying to get Pharaoh to repent and do the right thing. After every trumpet, Pharaoh was given an opportunity to soften his heart and turn to God. And did he? No. He hardened his heart after every trumpet. And you have to see that that's what sinners do. Sinners see evil being punished all around them. They see speeders going left and right, and they assume they'll get caught, but I won't. And even if the cop pulled them over, that means there's no more cops to catch me while I do 90 going down the highway. I will be the exception. 
We watch other, men watch other men get caught up in pornography and in adultery and in extramarital affairs. And they say that might have happened to them and they might have gotten notoriety before it and they might have gotten their comeuppance, but not me. Not me. We see other people take shortcuts to wealth and write off things on their taxes they shouldn't and make sales illegitimate ways and, and you know, write down, and try and get paid for work they never did. And they watch other people get caught in the news and they point their finger and they say, aha, that person got their judgment, but not me, but not me. You see, all around us, trumpets are sounding, saying God is angry and evil must be punished. And the whole reason why is so that you and I can see that and say, I must repent and turn from this or else I will perish like everyone else that I see. You see, we have to see that all throughout history, trumpets have been sounding. What John and what the Bible shows is that all destructive things in life and all the difficulties of living in this broken, imperfect planet are God sounding his trumpets to repent. Because you see, none of these broken things, go back to the garden, study it out. All these trumpets and signs you see, they were, there were no earthquakes in the garden. There was no thunder and lightning in the garden, didn't even need to rain in the garden. There were no broken relationships in the garden. There was no famine in the garden. They didn't even have to work the ground in the garden. That's what God wanted. Every broken piece of this earth that you see is a trumpet from God saying, I'm punishing evil. There are days and there are trumpets, and it's leading up to chapter 9 when there will be a day of judgment. And we're supposed to hear this and be able to turn to God. Can't you see that in all the pain of life, God is sending you a message. He's sending me a message about his wrath, that God's wrath against sin is being manifested, not just in the future, friends. It's being manifested in the here and now. And with all due respect to all of my you know, ministry colleagues and people that I look to who feel like you need a decoder lens to this, this is not supposed to be that hard to see. The whole point of these trumpets is just look outside and see how broken we are. Look to your own conscience. Look to your own heart. Look to your own behaviors. Why are you storing guns and ammo in the basement in case it all hits the fan? It's because we're broken. Why, when you have a baby at the hospital, do you have to put all kinds of electronic tags on the kids to make sure somebody with ill motives doesn't take your kid? It's because we're broken. Why do we have security systems? Why do we have deadbolts on our doors? Why do we have things like cancer and AIDS and infant, and infant mortality? Why? Because this world is broken and there is evil and God is angry. And some people get punished who seem to and other people get punished who don't seem to. But the reality is we are all sinful. And when we all present ourselves to God, unless we're in Christ, we will perish. And there's warnings all around us to not sleep on this idea that there is judgment coming and there is judgment here and there is more judgment that's coming for sin and for evil. This passage doesn't teach that everyone will always get their comeuppance in life though. You can read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It says this, Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain immediate judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In other words, some people get what they deserve right away and other people don't get what they deserve right away, but they're going to get it. And you and I ought not fall into, the, into the, the problem of thinking, you know what, I'm doing all these wrong things and because God's letting it go on, he must be okay with it. 
because he hasn't exposed my sin publicly, because I haven't gotten caught with my hand in the cookie jar, because my text messages that I'm trying to hide from people, these relationships I'm trying to carry on on the side haven't been exposed, he must be okay with it. The Bible says some people get it now, some people get it later, but if you're doing wrong and you're not in Christ, judgment is coming. And if you ignore the trumpet, shame on you. Shame on you. Even though you may not receive the kind of judgment another person receives, the trumpet is still being sounded for you. Since we may see God pour out his wrath against individuals in extreme ways, like we, we know that when Hitler, Hitler rose to power and he was a really bad guy, but at some point we knew he was going to get his too. We saw it in my lifetime with Saddam Hussein. He was a really bad figure who was really abusive and nasty, and at some point we, we knew that that wasn't going to last. We see it with groups, you know, Islamic terrorism and things like that. You see extremists, you see really bad people. I mean, you turn on the news now and you're like, okay, you know, all these allegations about all these different things going on behind the scenes in Hollywood with different stars. This one's running a cult in their house and is locking women up and keeping them there, you know, underage women there for his own sexual fantasies. And the, you hear stuff like that and you're like, at some point, these people are going to get what's coming to them. But Jesus warns us, and I don't have time to read this. If you go back to Luke 13, Jesus says, here's the problem that a lot of, you know, I would say today a lot of Christians have. Christians love to look at these trumpets and point at other people groups and blame them for those trumpets and miss the fact that trumpet's sounding for us. Like take something like AIDS. I hear a lot of far-right Christian groups say AIDS is a plague from God released as judgment against one particular people group. People have been doing that since the New Testament. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 13. He talks about some Galileans that got, got hanged by Pilate or crucified by Pilate. And everybody hated the Galileans. All the Jews hated the Galileans. So when the Jews saw the Galileans getting punished by Pilate, they were kind of saying like, of course, they had it coming. And Jesus says, do you think that they were somehow worse sinners than you? He says, if you don't repent, you too will get punished just like that. He tells a second story, this obscure passage in Luke 13. Jesus says, what about the 18 people who perished when that tower fell over? They were just going about their day. And the Tower of Siloam falls over and 18 people die. He says, do you think God did that because those 18 people were somehow worse sinners than the rest of you? That he just zapped them one day and left you alone? He said, if you don't repent, you will perish just like they did. Here's what he's saying. No Christian worth their salt points their finger at all these trumpets and saying, ha ha, they're getting what came to them. And ha ha, I can't wait to read the end of Revelation where everybody gets what's coming to them. Jesus says, you're missing it. In your own heart, those trumpets are sounding for you. For whom do the trumpets toll? They toll for me. They toll for you. So we ought not go around pointing at this group and that group and saying this sign is God's judgment against all the bad people in America. It is God's trumpet for all of us. Don't miss it. Listen to your conscience. Look at the circumstances of our broken world. Study the cycles and the patterns of God's judgment being revealed through history. Turn to him and repent. Question number two, why is God so angry? Why is he so angry? I'll give you a short answer and a, and a short defense of that answer. God is so angry because his perfect love for creation requires him to ultimately hate everything that destroys or threatens his creation. You simply cannot love perfectly without also hating. You can't do it. It's intellectually reckless to think that you can. The proof of the depth of your love 
surfaces by your hateful response to anything that threatens that which you claim you love. If you claim you really love your spouse perfectly, can you react with indifference if they're threatened by somebody? Can I say to you this morning, I love Kendra with all my heart. She's the most close human relationship that I have. I would do anything for her. And then watch another man threaten her physically and watch that with indifference. Does that mean that I really, really, really love her? If I see my wife working around the house and she's climbing up on a step stool and she falls off and she hurts herself and I just say, hey, get up, scrape it off. Is that perfect love? perfect love. When you love somebody so intensely, you are obligated by your love to hate anything that would threaten that which you love or else it's not really perfect love. Perfect love cannot look at a threat to that which you love with indifference, with apathy, with grace, with peace, with tact. Perfect love says if you threaten that which I love the most, I will destroy you. That's perfect love. God loves us. He loves his creation. How much? So much that when he recognizes there is evil in this world that is threatening to destroy his creation, he hates it and he acts hatefully towards anything that threatens his first love because of his love. That's why God is so angry. God is so angry because he hates evil. He hates sin because sin separates him from that which he loves the most, which is every single man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of this earth. And anything that separates him from us, he hates. He must hate it. To believe in a God that only loves and doesn't hate is ridiculous. The depth of his love forms the depth of his hate, and it doesn't make him unlike God. The concept of a God who's loving but not hating is inconsistent with the gospel. How can he perfectly love something that destroys his creation? What you see on the cross, and you have to catch this. This is the gospel. This is the nucleus of the gospel. What we see when Jesus hung on the cross, and the cross was the ultimate trumpet of God's wrath, by the way. It was the ultimate sounding of God's wrath is what we see happen on the cross. Do we see the sun darkened and the moon darkened? Yes. Do we see earthquakes? Yes. Do we see thunder and lightning? Yes. Do we see the wrath of God poured out upon himself in the form of his son with every harsh word, with every spit, with every lash, with every whip, with every pierce, with every element of torture? We see the wrath of God being poured out against humanity. We see all the brokenness, everything wrong about the world. All of the anger of God against sin is now unleashed upon Jesus. What we see at the cross is God himself through Jesus becoming one of us and saying, because of my fierce love for my creation, I will bear the brunt of my own wrath. I will take my own punishment. I will boil in my own stew. And God takes all of his anger against sin and humanity and he turns over angry people and he releases them to be as angry as they possibly can be and turn it all on the innocent man, the son of God in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And what you see at the cross is God saying, out of my love for you, I will bear my own wrath so that you won't perish. 
Now, you may reject that as a historical fable. You may push that aside on some technicality of your own thinking or because that doesn't fit the image of the God that you've created for yourself. What you cannot ever do is sentimentalize the gospel and say, Jesus hung on the cross so I can have a nice, cushy, comfortable life. The gospel won't let you do that. It's right in the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3, 16. God loved us so much that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not what? Perish. Jesus hung on the cross, not so you can have a good life, but so that you won't perish under the judgment and the wrath of God. The good news in all of this is that you don't have to walk through life fearing the wrath because somebody has already stepped in and satisfied God's wrath over your life, and that someone was Jesus Christ. And if you will be found in him, when God looks at you, he will say, I have no more wrath for you because my wrath for you was already satisfied at the cross. My wrath for you was already taken. Was, your wrath that has been stored up for you was already doled out on Jesus. And you have a choice. Look at the trumpets and say, do I want to ignore the trumpets and bear the brunt of God's wrath? Or do I want to listen to the trumpets and repent and be found in Christ, knowing that God's wrath has been satisfied in Jesus? Why is he so angry? He's angry because he loves. This trumpet says simply this. If you want to walk away from your creator, you can but you're going to fade into the darkness and eventually perish. Jesus Christ is the only light. Jesus alone offers life, forgiveness, and freedom from wrath. And then finally, question number three. How are you responding to God's wrath? How are you responding to these trumpets? For many of us, the way that we deal with the discomfort of reading Revelation is we assume all of this really bad stuff is going to happen way off in the future and none of, us, none of it will impact us at all. That's an irresponsible treatment of Revelation. It's an irresponsible treatment of the Bible when it says, listen, it's bad now. And we have to do better when we read Revelation as saying, guys, listen, the whole point here is let me go through the news and show you how all these trumpets might be falling into place. And let's go look at how bad it is. The Bible assumes that you don't need someone to show you how bad it is, that you can figure it out for yourself. The Bible says, what do you do with how bad you think it is? What do you do? When you see the trumpets sounding around you, every century they could have said, hey, it's getting bad out there. The people who heard this the first time didn't know if when they left church there'd be a a kill squad from the government outside ready to behead them. That's not what we're waiting on this morning. For us to say that, you know, it's going to get kind of bad for us and we're uncomfortable, that's to disrespect the first hearers of the word who were listening to it wondering if they would be one of the martyrs of chapter 9 on their way home. The truth of the matter is that history shows us God has always been angry at sin and has been showing us through judgments, through trumpets. It also shows us that in the here and now, God is showing us he's angry at sin. That's why people are building bunkers and stocking up ammunition and stocking up food and thinking that they've got to live off the grid. Why? Because even people who aren't following Jesus just recognize it's bad. It's broken. I've got to protect myself from others like me. So what do we do with it? How do we respond? I'll skip ahead to chapter 9 just to show you the, what we would expect is, well, pastor, how could any rational human being, having seen the judgment of God and connecting all the dots, how could any human being keep on sinning and turn their back on God? And the answer of the Bible is people have been doing that since the beginning. And here's what will happen, and it is happening now, is in chapter 9. This happens after we hear the next three trumpets, because here's what happens. At the end of the chapter, we have an eagle flying around. Is the eagle the United States? Is the eagle, I don't know. It's an eagle. 
something God created. And the eagle is saying, terror, terror, terror. Whoa, 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 warning, warning, warning. Listen to the trumpets and repent because there's worse coming. And then the worst comes in the beginning of chapter 9. Even more trumpets, even more judgment, even more signs that God is angry and we need to turn to him and repent. And here's what we see happen. Here's the response of everybody who was in sin while this is going on. Here's how the sinners respond to this. Chapter 9, I put a typo in there. It's actually chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, not 8, 20 to 21. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, their witchcraft, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is ridiculous, because what happens in between here and then is you see 200 million horses from hell released. You've got fire coming out of them. Some people say, are they helicopters? I don't know. I don't know what they are. If you would have, in the first century, you would have had an idea of what they were. We can talk about that later. But the reality is, the Bible is saying there's even more signs coming and it's tormenting people. And these horses are telling people, repent, 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 repent. And their answer to the horses are, uh-uh. No. I'm not turning to God. I'm not stopping. I'm not turning away from these things. What John is saying is that's what a sinner does when they see the brokenness of life and the judgment of God, that evil is going to be punished. They say, I don't care. I don't need God. I'll turn my back on it. If we don't, Pastor, what are you saying to the people that are listening to this this morning who don't know Christ? Hear me. If you're hearing this message and you don't know Jesus, you are in grave danger. You're in danger. God is trying to call you to repentance. The trumpets tell us that God's standards are unattainable. The the trumpets tell us that no matter how much you don't think you need him, you can't measure up to what you need to be spared from the worth of his wrath. His standards are that you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and neighbor as yourself. You cannot attain to those standards. If you don't believe in Jesus, the very essence of your rebellion is demonstrated by the delusional thought that you somehow can be the exception and you can stand before God unaided and also accepted. Only in the righteousness of Jesus can we ever be received by God bypasses wrath we have to admit that we need him to make us acceptable so we pass the wrath pastor this is heavy is there good news yeah there's good news the good news is that if you'll believe it and accept it jesus christ has already stepped in and borne god's wrath for you if you're a christian don't fall into the trap that says when you sin god has grown angry with you and now he's going to zap you The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that if you are in Christ and he is in you, there's no more condemnation. The wrath of God is gone over your life. If you're in Christ, you're saved from wrath. You're his precious ones gathered close to him. He listens to you and avenges you. I know we didn't get to talk about it. It's right there in the beginning of chapter 8. What's happening to all the prayers that you're praying that you don't think God's answering? Are they going in one ear and out the other? No, they're being stored up until the right time. They're being stored up before him, and at the right time, enough of us say, God, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer? 
the angel is going to be released from God to hurl those answers of those prayers down to earth. You and I don't have to be terrified of that day if we're in Christ. If we're in Christ, wrath has been satisfied. Freedom is ours. The love and the peace and the kindness and the grace of God is ours. His power is offered for you. And in conclusion, and I'll invite the worship team to come. In conclusion, in your notes, I, I figured I needed to at least to touch on this part because I kind of can imagine some of the reflections I'll get. So let me just say this. I think this will help you. Both God's kindness and his wrath are messages or trumpets that are meant to lead us to turn to God in repentance. Both his kindness and his wrath are trumpets, signs, warnings, obvious, accessible things, messages, arrows that are meant to lead us to turn towards God in repentance. Many people are deeply offended by this idea, these images of a God portrayed as a God of wrath. That's not the warm, fuzzy, peaceful, kind, pacifist that they, you know, that they imagine God to be. They don't believe in an angry God who judges people. Many people believe in a God who's just love, peace, kindness. Okay. But we're told all through the Bible the wrath of God is revealed. It's not hidden. It's revealed for the purpose or the function of convincing people to repent and to turn to God. We're also told in the same Bible that it's the goodness and also the kindness of God that's revealed for the same reason. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Both of these facets, these attributes of God, have the same end game, the same function, the same purpose. Well, pastor, I reject all this thought of God being a God of wrath. I think he loves everybody. Everybody gets to heaven. Fine. What are you doing with the kindness of God? How are you responding to that trumpet? Have you just rejected the wrath of God and you've heard about the kindness of God and now you are shunning evil? You're pursuing holiness. Have you heard the trumpet of God's kindness and come to him in repentance? What are you doing with that trumpet? Have you surrendered control of your life? Do you shun evil and pursue holiness? Don't you see that whether you're looking at the tender mercy of God towards you or whether you're looking at evil accelerating towards us, towards a horrible end, that both are messages from God saying, turn to me, draw close to me. I will have you. You will be mine. I will be yours. Friends, listen to the trumpets. Listen to your conscience. Listen to your circumstances. Look at the fear we have of death. Look at the brokenness of this world. Listen to those trumpets. Draw close to God. Turn from your evil ways. Stop chasing sin and draw close to God in holiness. Let's pray this morning. If you don't know Christ, you're in danger. But I want to offer you a pathway that means that you are in danger no longer. I preached the gospel to you this morning. The gospel says that God knew it was a problem His anger was a problem, but it was nonetheless a reality. And he did not want his wrath to fall on anybody's head. But we've all done wrong. We've all done evil, and evil deserves to be punished. And it's punished through the vehicle of God's wrath. But God wasn't satisfied with that, so he sent his son into the world who took the form of a man 
and he stepped in and said, I will bear all of God's wrath for all humanity forever. So that man can choose to believe in Jesus. Man can choose to believe in his resurrection from the dead. And man can choose to surrender lordship and control of his life to Jesus. And in so doing, he will be in Christ and Christ will be in him. And he will not have to live in terror. God's wrath will bypass him. God's wrath will be satisfied in Jesus. So if you are suffering under the heaviness of being aware of your own wrong this morning, there is no other antidote for you that will change that but Jesus. Yes, you can ignore it, you can suppress it, you can fill that vacuum up with more wild living, but it will wear off. It will destroy you, it will consume you. Jesus has satisfied that. And in him, you find salvation and freedom for your soul. You find rest for your soul. So can I encourage you to draw close to him today? I wanna lead in a prayer of repentance this morning. If you want to make your life right with God through Jesus today, I want you to join me in this prayer. This prayer is also fine if you say, I've made a decision to follow Jesus, but pastor, I've fallen into sin. I have stumbled. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord. It spoke, he spoke through Suba this morning. He's speaking through his word again today. All of those things you stumbled into must bow their knee to Jesus Christ. You really want out? It's not through reading another 20 books. It's through surrendering your life to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. That is your starting point. It begins with a repentance and a turning away from those sins and drawing close to holiness. So let me lead us in a prayer of repentance this morning. And then after we pray in repentance, we're gonna sing the song of commitment that says, I want to draw close to you once again. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you took the form of a man and entered this world that you lived a sinless life that you are entirely obedient to god your father and that you gave your life up on the cross in order to bear the brunt of god's anger against all of my sin and all of our sins Everything that's happened previously and everything that ever will happen, all of God's wrath was poured out on you. That was not fair. That wasn't right. But boy, am I thankful that you did that for me. Today, I confess my belief in you. I confess that I believe you didn't die and remain dead, but that you came back from the dead and that you're alive today. I want you to be in me and I want to be found in you. I accept forgiveness for my sins. I accept the satisfaction of, of, of the wrath intended for me. And I turn to you and I draw close to you. Will you draw close to me? I surrender control of my life to you. I will live by your word. I will live according to your example. I need more of you in my life. Help my life to be an arrow, a trumpet as it were, that points everyone to you. In your name I pray, amen.